1: Welcome back to the next episode of Pod Sequentialism, which is an outgrowth of the Pop Sequentialism show, exhibition, and blog site in partnership with Meltdown Comics, where we are recording live. And so, if you do hear a little bit of ambient noise in the background, please understand that we always have some amazing events going down here at Meltdown Comics, and uh, we encourage you to stop by. Uh, the guest on today's podcast will be none other than Stephen Bissett who, if you don't already know, is one of the most important voices of American comic books to emerge from the 1980s as part of the team with Alan Moore and John Tottlebin that revamped DC's Saga of the Swamp Thing, helped kick off the Vertigo line of comics by about five years. Um, he's also been a self-publisher, has encouraged other people to self-publish under his imprint Spider Baby Graphics and through the, the anthology title Taboo was the first person to publish Alan Moore's From Hell story, in addition to many other independent voices addressing horror in very creative and uh, some might say extreme ways. But um, he also reteamed with Alan Moore in the 1963 comic at Image and is currently um, part of the instructor's team at Cartoon, Center for Cartoon Studies in Vermont, which is helping to raise the next generation of comic book professionals and uh, sequential artists. So I want to, without further ado, welcome Stephen Bissett to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Great to be
1: here. And it's great to have you. When uh, we first set up this podcast, I wanted to let you know that you were on a very short list of people that I had to have in the first three shows. Um, You were very uh, important to my understanding and appreciation of comics, and both being from New England, you were somebody that was sort of a local folk hero to us in Lynn, Massachusetts, being just across the border in Vermont.
3: Well, thank you. I I appreciate that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. You're also, I think, the first insider um, that uh, I'd ever had any contact with in the comic book business going back to the early 1980s. And you were on a monthly title at the time. You were on SAG of Swamp Thing. But it occurred to me that I had seen your work previous to that in publications like Bananas that um, were available through the Weekly Reader Program in elementary schools. And um, I noticed that a lot of that work was republished years later in the Bedlam release that um, Eclipse had put out the the two shot that had you know, yeah
3: actually I don't I don't think it was in Bedlam I think it was in um, uh, a collection called Fear Book ah yes and then years later uh, we also collected some of it in Dead Time Stories which. Yes. Um, Tom Yates did the cover for, and that was with another publisher out of California, um, that I was working with for a time.
1: And that was you, Um, Rick Rick
2: Veach?
3: Um, myself, Rick Veach, um, Tom Yates did a story for, uh, Scholastic at that time. I don't know if that was included in the reprint because it was a color piece. Mm -hmm. Um, there were a number of us who worked, for Scholastic during those years. And that, in fact, is when I first met Howard Cruz. Howard Cruz was doing a lot of work for Scholastic at that time as well.
1: I love his um, uh, his creepy snuff porn story that uh, that uh, I think caused a lot of problems for the comics industry when it was published, but um, helped to, you know, louden the, the voices in the background of people that wanted to see what they wanted to see and didn't want anybody saying that they couldn't see it. Yeah. Now you had um, you had all Tom and Rick um, met previously at the Joe Kubert School. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, yeah. We were all members of the Pioneer class, the first class to go through the Kubert School curriculum. Uh, we all started in September of 1976. Um, our class numbered originally around 21 people, um, and in the spring of 78, I think 16 or 17 of us graduated. And that was the first class to ever go through uh, what was at that time a two-year program. Um, and uh, we became fast friends. Rick was one of the reasons I had even screwed up the courage to apply to go to the Hubert School. Um, I had been um, uh, a huge fan of the underground comics movement, Uh, those were the comics that that reignited my love for comics and really made me want to draw comics again. And I don't know if I'd have had the wherewithal to apply for the Cibbert School were it not for Two-Fisted Zombies, which Rick's older brother, Tom Veach, um, did with Rick. Mm -hmm. And in the indicia of Two-Fisted Zombies, um, there was something like, you know, hey kids, if you want to write us, we're at and their address was in Bellows Falls, Vermont. And I thought, well, if these guys are from Bellows Falls, Vermont, then I can go after this. You know, I'm from Duxbury, Vermont, so. <laughs> <laughs> and Frank <laughs> um, Miller was not too far from the, you guys, well, too. Well, but those are the kind of little things that you know. I mean, there's a lot of adult voices for a lot of us grow up growing up wanting to be cartoonists. There's a lot of adult voices discouraging that dream, mm-hmm. and um, it it really tipped the scales in the direction of uh, daring to apply to the Kubert School, and um, even the head of the art department at the college I was going to at the time, Johnson State College, I studied art and theater and scenic design there for two years, and the head of the art department, who was very supportive of um, my independent study program that resulted in the publication of the first comic i was part of a um a one shot called abyss Mm -hmm. he was you know he was like you're going to be up against really hot shot new york cartoonists you know you're you're not going to make the grade and um um i still gave it a go and a big part of it was because of that two-fisted zombies comic (laughs) and i'm glad i did
1: as are we all actually and um so many thanks to the Veach brothers of course and I think, oh, you bet. <laughs> and I think that also when um, – now, Yeats had gotten a job at D.C. ahead of everybody else, and he was doing covers and interiors on Saga, the Swamp Thing.
3: Well, it was a, it was a process. Um, when we started at the Kubert School, um, Joe Kubert began to introduce sort of a work-study program. And, and initially that meant, you know, we were doing the touch-up work on photo stats of old – DC superhero comic stories for um, these New American Library paperback collections of Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and Superboy and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And gradually, um, that led for some of us to the toward the opportunity of working on more ambitious projects. And what we really wanted was a shot at doing a comic story that would see print in a four color comic book that would be on the newsstand. And Rick Beach and I got the first shot at that. We drew a a backup story um for Sergeant Rock. Mm-hmm. And the story was entitled A Song for Saigon Sally. It was set during the Vietnam War. And that was our that was Rick's and my first collaborative work that saw print. And that was Rick's and my first work solo or together in a four-color comic book that was on the newsstand. And during that time, Tom Yates also got to do a couple of stories for Sergeant Rock, and I scripted one of those. It was called Live by the Sword, Die by the Sword. And that was my first professional script sale Mm -hmm. as a writer in the comic field as well. So when we graduated from the Kubert School, we all... Um, you know, went in our different directions. And a core group of us, Tom Yates, Rick Beach, John toddlebin, and myself, um, rented a house together uh, just outside of Dover, New Jersey. And we were trying to break into the field. Um, Rick and I, uh, and I believe Tom, although Rick landed more than any of us, continued to do more backup work and battle albums for Joe, that saw print in Sgt. Rock, mm-hmm. and that's where a lot of our Cubert School classmates, including Tim Truman and Jan Dersama and Tom Mandrake, you know, that's where they got their first uh, pro work published as well. Um, Tom was the first one to get his foot in the door up at DC Comics, and I believe he started doing work in some of DC's suspense titles. You know, um, or mystery titles. They weren't really horror comics. (laughs) Right. And, um, and that did include covers. You're right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But bear in mind that during that time, I mean, I, I was the first one of us to sell work to heavy metal. Right. Um, I was still doing work for Scholastic. Um, Rick Veach was doing work and Rick actually opened the door for me to do work for uh, a, a couple of underground comics. The underground movement had pretty much, come to a a, a crawl, mm-hmm. but there were still independent publishers out there like Clifford Neal, who was out of Mystic, Connecticut. And Rick um, was publishing work in Dr. Wortham's Comics and Stories and convinced me to give it a try. So while Tom was getting his foot in the door at um, DC, the others of us were getting our foot in the door at Heavy Metal, Marvel, you know, and elsewhere. Right. Um, And that led to uh, Len Wein, being the editor at DC, who really campaigned to um, have Tom take over the Swamp Thing, uh, which had been a a pretty moribund character. DC had really relegated Swamp Thing to uh, cameo roles in Challengers of the Unknown and, and titles like that. And Swamp Thing really pretty much disappeared by the late 70s. And uh, because of uh, Melniker and Uselin, the producer team, best known for the Tim Burton Batman movie, one of the properties they licensed from D.C. was Swamp Thing. That was the film that Wes Craven directed. It was a a very low budget indie film shot uh, down in Louisiana. And um, it was released by Avco Embassy, who were on a real winning streak at that time. Uh, They had released um, The Howling. David Cronenberg's scanners—they um, really were making it big with horror movies for a time, and Swamp Thing fell into that production stream, and that led to Len and DC uh, hiring Tom to start work on what became known as Saga of the Swamp Thing.
1: And you mentioned that you know that um, that people were working for uh, the Herbert Wortham's uh, comics and stories. Which was uh, very derisive of the man who kind of put comics under scrutiny, and I, it wasn't until I believe I read your book on um, New Mutants and, and Teen Angels that um, that brought up the fact that Wortham had been as friendly to the independent publishers as he as he had been against the mainstream publishers, and was sort of a huge fan of zines and that type of thing, and so that
3: yeah, that was a real curious, and and I really. Um, uh, focus my attention for a time on trying to divine what it was that um, Wortham was about. This is Dr. Frederick Wortham we're talking about. He was the man who wrote Seduction of the Innocent, which was published early in 1954. Um, uh, a chapter from that book was excerpted in the Ladies Home Journal magazine, which was an incredibly popular newsstand and subscription magazine in the 40s and 50s. Women all across the country read it, huge readership in the millions, and they excerpted a chapter from Seduction of the Innocent. And that really kicked off the uh, serious wave of attacks on comic books uh, that culminated in two Senate subcommittee hearings in 1954 and eventually the formation of the Comics Code Authority by the end of that year, by the end of 54. Um, Were them – had a real anger about comics um he was upset about violence in any media he felt that uh, and and he argued that the expression of violence in popular media specifically popular media that was aimed at chi- children at child readers um was a means of propagating violence and uh legitimizing violence in Uh, one's personal life and that it actually was a precipitating factor in juvenile delinquency and juvenile crime. Um, Wortham was against violence in all the media, paperbacks, movies, television was coming into homes in the early 50s, but comic books became his real bugaboo. And uh, then, (laughs) toward the end of the the, uh, 60s, um, he began gathering um, fanzines. He began subscribing to fanzines and this ripple went through fanzine culture, um, specifically science fiction fanzine culture, because comic fanzine culture was really um, growing at that time. But science fiction fanzine culture had been around for uh, decades by that point. Right. And here's Wertham trying to uh, buy, and in some cases... You know, asking if he can get sample issues um, because he was operating with no budget. Um, mm-hmm. This was all independent research that he was funding out of his own pocket. And um, the fanzine editor certainly didn't forget him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they all remembered him. I can
1: imagine and, that what Roy Thomas's um, reaction must have been to to get letters from Herbert Wortham looking for his fanzines. Oh, uh
3: Frederick Wortham. Fre- Frederick Sorry, Wortham. Yes, Frederick yeah. Wortham. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, Roy Thomas, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, all, all of these comic uh, fanzine editors were were out, outraged, amused, and and uh, whole mix of emotions over this. But Wortham was working on a serious book called *The World of Fanzines* um, that was published in 1973. And as you mentioned in in my book *Teen Angels and New Mutants*, I dedicate uh, an entire chapter to uh, Wortham's uh, revisionist take. On the counterculture comics, he loved fanzines, and he liked uh, what he had or, or what he had seen of what was the beginning of the underground comics movement. He championed that, and for a lot of comic readers, that was a real disconnect. But when you really understand Wortham's writings going back to the late '40s, he was reacting against corporate culture. He right. did not see comic books as any means of individual self-expression. And uh, fanzines were um, a reaction to that. And he saw fanzines and underground comics as a positive force because they were not manifestations of corporate culture. And they were very clearly self-expression of individuals. And that's what were the most championing. Um, But it allowed us to see clearly for the first time where he was wearing blinders. you know, he, he specifically cited, both in Letters to Fanzines and in his book, The World of Fanzines, um, that he thought Alex Toth was one of the most articulate and brilliant of the cartoonists. And yet, Toth had been drawing for some of the same crime comics that Wortham had attacked in Seduction of the Innocent and continued to attack well into the 1960s um, with subsequent books. Uh, on uh, violence in the media. Yeah. Um, let's take a so quick it's interesting. Break. I mean, he really had this sort of blind spot. He did not see commercial comics as any mode of self-expression. He simply saw them as company product, and that's what he was reacting against.
1: Right. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our yep. sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our guest Stephen Bissett.
0: Hey guys, it's Breyers. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltology. Meltology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works: Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9:30 p.m., we'll collect all of the art and three dollars for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Melthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck. And that is at Melt underscore Thology.
1: Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism, an outgrowth of the Pop Sequentialism blog and exhibitions and Meltdown Comics and Collectibles where we are recording live. And back with us again is our guest, Stephen Bissette. Um, principal behind the John Constantine character um, created with Alan Moore and John Toddlebin, the saga, the Swamp Thing comic, and one of the teams that helped kick off what would become the vertigo movement. And also a principal behind the self-publishing of the late eighties in comics. We we're just talking about uh, Dr. Wortham and how um, the man who had been kind of single handedly responsible for the birth of the comic code and had been um, virulently against uh, comic books and violence of any sort, was a huge fan of independent publishing, and we got on that after uh, addressing some of the underground comics that that first graduating class from the Kubert School had come to work on in uh, in Vermont and New Jersey and elsewhere. And so I think where we should pick up, Steve, is talking about what it was like to be working on a title that was probably pretty close to cancellation, and then turning that title around into one of the most successful comics, not only at that publisher but in comics in general, and especially for a non-superhero title, but that became so influential on all the the readers and artists and writers that followed. And what was it like getting that assignment and probably meeting, I'm guessing, uh, by phone and probably not in person, Alan Moore for the first time?
3: Um, it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting how you frame that. I mean, Swamp Thing, uh, you know, we were told at the time was... Uh, and and suffering very low sales numbers. Which today Um, anybody would be happy to have. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, uh, But, I mean, we never saw numbers. I mean, we never saw um, actual um, sales figures for the title at any point. We were informally told uh, early on when we were working on the title that the sales had dropped as low as 16,000. Uh, one six thousand wow, you know one six comma zero zero zero
2: yeah.
3: um, uh by the time we were stepping away from the title, meaning John Toliban and myself around issue fifty, um we were told that the sales were up around sixty five thousand mm-hmm. um six five comma zero zero zero, so. Yeah, and, and that was all through primarily word of mouth and the considerable support that we got from retailers around the country and around uh, the world. There was there was a, a huge wave of support for Swamp Thing in countries like England, um, but it was never particularly that successful a title. I mean, even with those sales numbers, bear in mind that this was nothing compared to X-Men what they were or, selling with yeah. with Batman yeah. and and you know their other titles. Um, but um you know we did turn it around uh and we did it just by um the strength of the work that that we were doing um when john toddleman and i started on swamp thing uh well actually john had been um assisting tom yates for a time going mm-hmm. back as far as swamp thing saga of the swamp thing number two mm-hmm. um all of us had had helped one another on various jobs. It was one of the, the benefits of sharing a house together in New Jersey. Uh, Tom Yates was the first one of us to um, get a new place to live out in Lake Lake Hopatcong, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And uh, John continued, you know, assisting Tom when he needed it. And Tom needed it. I mean, it was a monthly book and he was penciling and inking it himself. And the Those are daunting deadlines, and the book started behind schedule because DC launched the initial early, uh, the initial initial issue earlier than originally planned. So Tom was always sort of behind the eight ball, and we inherited that. Um, We were always behind the eight ball as well.
2: It's reminiscent, and that was just
3: part of the nature of working on periodical comics at that time. And then John and I were on the book solo as of issue sixteen. And we were working with Marty Pasco, who was the writer uh, from the, from Swamp Thing number one, with Tom Yates doing the artwork. And then Alan Moore came on with issue twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, Marty was doing more and more Saturday morning um, animated TV series scripting work, which was much more lucrative for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also. Up against a lot of pressure because he was juggling so many deadlines, both in the comic books he was writing for DC and with the cartoon shows. And at some point, uh, Len made the decision to bring in a new writer and out of the blue contacted us and said, um, you boys are going to be working with Alan Moore. And we were overjoyed. We had been reading Warrior Magazine coming out of England. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were familiar with. Uh, the work that Alan had been doing with Gary Leach and the other creators on Marble Man. And uh, we were certainly familiar with V for Vendetta, which Alan was doing with David Lloyd. And Len was kind of taken aback that we knew who Alan was. <laughs> yeah. We didn't know Alan, but we knew his work because we'd been reading Warrior. And more and, amazing, um, that
1: those those two comics ran in the same periodical that Marvel Man magazine. and yeah, Vendetta... Yeah, and that was
3: an experiment in creator ownership and... Um, sort of a creator collaborative. Um it didn't work in, in a number of ways. I mean Des Des Skin was the editor and publisher of Warrior. Mm-hmm. Um he had, had um success with a magazine called uh Halls of Hammer. It was also called Halls of Horror. Um it was a monster magazine. Yep. Um,
1: I, I had it in my collection. <laughs> there you go. I and mean,
3: Hammer was a was a name that meant something commercially in england because of the renown of hammer films mm-hmm. in america it was not as well known and when and they did eventually put out uh, a few issues that were distributed here in america and they called them halls of horror when yeah. they came out here um and des wanted to really do something with comics and that became warrior magazine and alan was absolutely central to that body of work as was david lloyd and gary leach and Stephen Moore and a number of other writers and artists, and um, uh, when I refer to it not being entirely successful, I mean, there were a lot of legal issues that that really became long-term nightmares, the most renowned of those being the confusion over who exactly owned Marvel Man slash Miracle Man, and that was only resolved, you know, about a year and a half, two years ago. Yeah. Uh, but the creative work in the magazine was often phenomenal. And so we were the first colonials who got to work with Alan. That's what Alan referred to us as. <laughs> and and now um, the, the... working with him was tremendous. Our first exchanges, this is before the Internet, before email. Our first exchanges with Alan were by um, snail mail. Mm-hmm. We, we, meaning myself, John Toddleman, and Alan Moore, we were, um, ex- we were writing each other very long letters at the beginning, um, introducing ourselves, getting our feet wet. It turned out that Alan was already familiar with my work, and in in fact had borrowed <laughs> one of my drawings to come up with um, Dr. and Quinch. Oh, wow! Um, I had done an inside cover uh, cartoon for um, Larry Shells, New Jersey-based underground comic Alien Encounters,
2: wow. and I had these two joyriding.
3: Uh, aliens swinging, swinging beer in this convertible hovercraft, ripping through the Jurassic swamps with a pterodactyl pasted to the front grill of the vehicle, um, and that was the splash page for the first Dr. and Quinch. And Alan's first letter to me, his second letter to me, was had included an apology. Gee, Steve, I, I guess I owe you one there, you know. <laughs> so we, you know, we were each aware of each other's work uh, before we were working together. And once we were actually, uh, working on a single issue together, which was Swamp Thing 21, that was the first one I penciled, Mm
2: -hmm. um, and
3: and yes, the anatomy lesson. And I called my buddy Rick Beach in to help with the pencils on that. Um, and, um, we were all firing on all cylinders at that point. I still think that's one of the best things we ever did was that first issue anatomy lesson, everything worked. And Alan was exactly the voice that we had been looking for. Rick Veach and I had been talking for years by that point about what was missing in comics. And we were trying to do it in our own work, but we just weren't strong enough writers. And when I got that script, uh, to the anatomy lesson, uh, you know, it, it was visceral, my response to it. It was exactly what we were looking for. And, um, there was in, in 22 pages.
1: I went back and reread that recently and it was just as impactful to me now at 44 years of age as it was to me when I first read it, probably at the age of 13. And what I noticed too is, the, the two names that were always compared throughout the 80s and probably still get compared, and, and every once in a while they get into a, um, an online tiff um, through uh, format or, or about political views. And it was always Frank Miller versus Alan Moore. And um, I noticed that in in Miller's second take on Daredevil that his, his storytelling mechanic was very similar to the storytelling mechanic that alan had used in the anatomy lesson and that would something he would also use in watchmen and and his type of narrative i think he may have also used in the in the two shot and vigilante where it's the the presentation the story isn't necessarily told out of time but that you see a a dialogue within a single character's voice of events that are happening and what they're saying are happening and that they wind up being two um, different things, and it's the type of, of metafiction that's really only possible, or was only possible at the time in comics, and has only recently, through CGI and, and other other ways of telling well, stories, become a
3: prospect. I mean, we were coming from, that's an interesting observation, and bear in mind that, I mean, I, I understand why people focus on, on Alan's work and Frank's work as so sort of the avatars of of that period in comics history from the mid 80s to, let's say 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, it it was happening in other places. I mean, one of the things that Alan and I bonded over quite early on with our initial letters to one another um, was our shared love for um, certain uh, 1970s filmmakers who mm-hmm. had pushed the envelope and prominent among them was Nicholas Roeg, yeah. R-O-E-G. And for your listeners, he was was the director of Performance, Walkabout, The Man Who Fell to Earth, um, Don't Look Now, Mm -hmm. uh, which just got a beautiful reissue from Criterion on DVD and Blu-ray. These were these were films that told their story um, all almost in a mosaic pattern where, you know, Roig would sort of tell his stories from the outside in and arrive at the heart of of the emotion of a story. And Alan very much adopted that. And that, that was part of what I was responding to on such a gut level when I read the script for the anatomy lesson. It's like, oh, my God, he's not only caught it, he's taking it further. And um, and bear in mind, I mean, we were all reading each other's work. Um, part of the excitement of working on Swamp Thing and feeling the the chemistry that we did suddenly when Alan was on board, John and I had worked up a certain head of steam with the three issues we had done together under Marty Pasco. We had a certain comfort level with the characters, but it wasn't until Alan came into the fold that Len brought him in. And then as of issue 25, Karen Berger took over the stewardship of the title. She was the editor as of issue 25. Um, That's when everything was really clicking for us. But we were reading Daredevil. I mean, we were totally aware of what Frank had done, and I had been reading it from the time that Frank was just penciling the book, working with – I think it was Roger McKenzie was the writer? Yes. And then Frank took over the writing and and the penciling, working with Klaus Janssen as the inker. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was a real team. Um, And that, to me, was incredibly exciting. And we definitely felt like we were building on bedrock that Frank uh, and Klaus had laid with Daredevil. And then Frank was reading our work, and the first time we all met, um, we were doing – every November, uh, John Tottlebin was doing the Mid-Ohio conventions. Mm -hmm. And it was this uh, fundraising convention for – the American Cancer Society, I believe. Frank was going to those conventions. That's where I met Frank uh, for the first time in my life. And we clicked not just because of our excitement over each other's work. We had grown up 15, 20 miles apart. Yeah. He, had gone, he had grown up in East Montpelier and gone to school at Union 32 in Montpelier, Vermont. I had grown up in Duxbury and Waterbury and gone to Harwood Union. And because we were not in sports or band, we never met each other.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> you
3: know, the fact that there were two cartoonists meant nothing in in school systems at, at that time. Right. But um, we were aware of each other's work, and we became friends with Bill Sinkevich. Oh. Um, and you know, you you or any of your listeners can track the cross fertilization between all those. And, you know, we'd go to a convention like Mid-Ohio Convention. Bill would bring in the pages that he was doing for Electra Assassin. Um, John Tolliban and I would be drooling over that original art. And then John would go home and start working on what became Loving the Alien, that issue of Swamp Thing that Alan wrote to John's artwork. John right. did the artwork first. And that was Toliman's reaction to seeing the physical... Uh, transformation of the comic page that Bill Sienkiewicz was uh making manifest with collaborating with Frank Miller on Electric Assassin. So we were really all of us, you know, cross-fertilizing. It was like a big beehive at that point. We were bringing in pollen from everywhere and trying to turn it into honey. <laughs> <laughs> and um and it was a really exciting time to be in comics. Um Frank at the time And I think it was that first time we all met, you know, Frank was one of the things he would smile and say is the inmates have taken over the asylum. I mean, we it was palpable that this was a window of opportunity that our generation suddenly had it working at DC Comics at the time when DC needed us as much as we were hungry for the venue to reach a public. And uh, and we gave it our all. And uh, it wasn't until about 1986, 87 that it started to sour. Um, And it was right at the time where D.C. was beginning to achieve real success with The Dark Knight Returns and um, Watchmen. Um, And suddenly they were trying to control it. You know, they wanted they wanted to codify it. That's what business people do. This is successful. Let's keep making these successful things. And as soon as they tried doing that, there was one point where John Tallman said to me, you know, we put the car on the road, and now they want us in the back seat." And that was the beginning of our decision to move on. I mean, it really was a matter of time at that point. Uh, what were we going to do next? And John and I already had our eye on what turned into taboo. Um, and for John, he already had his eye on collaborating individually as an artist with Alan on what became Allen's, and John's run on uh, Miracle Man.
1: So we'll take a, a short break here to uh, hear another word from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with Stephen Bissett and talk about the explosion of the self-publishing market at the uh, in the mid, mid-1980s and what it's like to, to leave um, a major publisher and go it alone. So we'll be right back after this message.
0: Loot Crate, Comic-Con in a Box. This is a monthly subscription service where, because of their iconic partners, each box is packed with exclusive items. There are different plans to suit your needs, and when you enter the promotional code Meltdown, you will get three dollars off your crate. Check it out at Lootcrate.com.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism, and uh, an outgrowth of the Pop Sequentialism blog and exhibitions, and of Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. Where we are recording live, and there's always events at Meltdown, and you can probably hear some of them in the background of our recording. But uh, we're uh, we're speaking with Stephen Bissett, who of course has um, been a collaborator of Alan Moore's and has been a self publisher. And uh, we were just talking about how um, the the model that helped rebuild um, DC Comics was starting to come apart a little bit as the um, probably media companies that were connected to the ownership of characters. Decided that uh, they were going to get a little bit more involved, but let's talk about how how it all kind of decided to come to an end, and how you decided to to move on in your in your next endeavors, and then circling back to working with Alan again um, at Image Comics, and and then your subsequent um, formation of the Center for Cartoon Studies in Vermont.
3: Okay. Where do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I guess let's start with um, with planting the seeds of taboo. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was um, from a conversation with Dave Sim. Um, it was
3: more than a conversation with Dave. Well, it's yeah. always
1: more than a conversation when it comes to Dave. There
3: Sim. you go. D- Dave uh, was also one of the professionals that I met um, and finally got to spend time with um, at the Mid Ohio Convention. So, in terms of you know my dynamic with all these things we're talking about. Mid-Ohio convention was a really important um, focal point for a number of things that culminated in taboo. Dave at one of those mid-Ohio conventions um, showed up at the hotel with a limousine (laughs) and, and uh, you know, had the desk ring John Taliban and I, and we come down to the lobby and there's Dave waiting in the lobby in his suit jacket. And he says, "Come on, boys." And he brings us out to the limousine, and the driver gets up and opens the door, and John and I look at each other, and Dave said something like, "I thought you should know how it feels for the DC executives." And Dave began this active dialogue that went on for a number of years of how we were part of this pyramid scheme that mainstream publishing operated under where it was an inverted pyramid where Uh, the people at the top were the ones who were earning uh, ample paychecks and living very comfortably. But it was an entire superstructure built on the backs of freelance talent, which got no benefits, never knew when they were going to be paid, were dependent from job to job to job, and were often locked into these vicious uh, fiscal cycles involving advances. You You would work your way up to get a project, you'd get an, an advance of some sort, a cash infusion that was supposed to carry you through the project, and it never would. Um, and um, uh, and that this was the power structure. And this dialogue went on for a number of years, but for the purpose of, of the chronology concerning Taboo, it was about a three-year dialogue that culminated in Dave um, extending an offer at MidOhioCon, to John Toddleman, to myself, to Frank Miller, to Bill Sienkiewicz. He also flew to England and made the same offer to Alan Moore. David kind of cherry-picked a handful of people whose work he loved and who he felt, um, uh, I shouldn't say felt, who he thought, (laughs) David's not a feel kind of guy, he's a think kind of guy, he thought would would be ready to make the, the jump. And it turned out that um, in many ways, I was the only one out of that group ready to make the jump. Um, It was hard for people to let go of there's an illusory security in working with a large company, right? You think you're getting a page rate and that's dependable or you're working for advances. And at that time, you know, Frank had just scored one of the major groundbreaking contracts and deals with DC Comics doing the Dark Knight Returns. Um, but it's a very seductive cycle and it's, it's seductive in ways that fans and fan culture doesn't understand. Everyone would look at Frank and think he was at the top of the world when Dark Knight Returns came out. But the fact of the matter was Frank had been working on that project for a a, a long period of time. The issues were finally coming out. The advance money was often spent by the time the books came out. And there would be no more income for Frank until the next installment was turned in or when the entire book was done, he was going to be waiting six months to a year before there were returns. And those books had to earn out their advances first. So there was this illusion there that at the same time that the world at large and fan culture in particular would think that um, a creator had broken through into the big time. Many of them were actually scrambling in near poverty at times because they were between earning cycles.
1: And here's a guy who's publishing a book with maybe a 12,000 circulation. You got it. I mean,
3: he pulls up in a limo. On on Cerebus was between 13,000 to 18,000. You know, it would go up and down, but, you know, I I remember uh, Dave or Gerhardt telling me at one point that it sort of stabilized around 13,000. And Dave had totally total autonomy. He was the only creator that we were seeing regularly at these shows who was taking care of himself, who wasn't dependent on noblesse oblige of the companies or functioning with no support. Um, And Dave was there saying, look, if you put in the same amount of work that you're already putting in and investing in your careers, but you invested in yourselves instead of these corporate characters You will take better care of yourself, you will be um, enriching the entire environment that we all work and live in, in a very different and much healthier way, and you will be more fully investing in your future.
1: And there was also, Um, at this time, there was the, the possibility of a split of Diamond employees and um, for people unfamiliar, Diamond Distribution has pretty much had a, a stranglehold on the distribution of all comic matter and goods for, oh, about 30 years. maybe. Well, longer.
3: actually, the stranglehold didn't kick in until 1996. When I started on Taboo, and we started Taboo based on that invitation from Dave. Dave mm-hmm. said, I'll publish anything you guys want to do. Um, Diamond was only one distributor at that time. Right. Uh, Matt. It was uh, Capital Diamond, and... we, we had like 14 distributors that we sold Taboo to. Oh, wow. And they were uh, among those 14 distributors include Titan mm-hmm. over in the UK, yeah. and they were distributing uh, our products into Europe. And we had uh, Andromeda and Neptune, and I believe one or two other small distributors in Canada. Canada. So Diamond didn't really get the lock. On the market until 1996. That's when the whole implosion happened. Mm-hmm. Capital um, was suddenly out of business, and Diamond became the monopoly. You know, mm-hmm. the only game in town. Uh, but, but that's jumping our chronology just a little bit. Uh, between 1988, when I started publishing Taboo, and 1995, 96, when I pulled the plug on Tyrant, was this real sweet spot for creator publishing. I mean, self-publishing was in this really uh, blessed period at that time where you could actually create, write, draw, letter, typeset, find a printer and print your own book and get it into the marketplace. And if you had something that rang a bell with people the way that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles did Mm -hmm. out of the blue for uh, consumers, uh, you can enjoy great success. Or if you were slow and steady wins the race and persistent and timely the way that Dave, Sim, and Gerhardt were as the team on Cerebus, that book came out, um, monthly almost like clockwork. Mm -hmm. You know, it would ebb and flow, especially when they were, um, on promotional tours. Um, that's the kind of distraction a self-publisher is often dealing with. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the, you know, Dave had built a real autonomous, um, work base and creation base for himself with a readership of under 20,000 readers. Um, and, um, it, a- anything was possible for a time. And there were a number of boom and busts. You know, there was the black and white boom of the mid 80s because of the turtles, and that led to the black and white bust because suddenly we're, there were 50 that had sound alike titles, you know, adjective, 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 animal. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Adolescent
1: radioactive black belt hamsters, you Boris got the it. Bear, Albedo. Yeah, there was a lot of them.
3: All that, and, and and even ones that didn't sound directly like the turtles, like Fish Police and so on. But yeah. there was a there was a definite black and white boom and then bust, and a lot of people made small fortunes, and a lot of people lost everything. Yeah. Um, and then it would ramp up again and cycle down. But um, you know, we were doing Taboo from 1988. To about 1992, and I originally was uh, publishing that um, with the backing of Dave Sim Mm -hmm. and then publishing it alone. And then starting with Taboo number four and especially number five, co publishing it with Tundra, Mm -hmm. which was Kevin Eastman's um, solo publishing company when he broke away from Mirage to do his own thing. And then the last two issues of Taboo, there were 10 in all, the last two issues were published um, with Kitchen Sink who had sort of absorbed Tundra. Um, It was presented to the public as kitchen sink buying Tundra, but it was actually sort of the reverse of that. And, of course, Dennis (laughs) Um, Kitchen
1: had been one of the early underground
3: guys and had been publishing Black Mountain Comics for years. Dennis had been around since the 60s. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And Dennis Kitchen had come out of Wisconsin, of all places. And, um, And I don't say that to diss Wisconsin. It's just that wasn't thought of as a hub of... Underground, uh, comics work the way that Berkeley, Texas, and New York were thought of as hubs of underground activity. But Dennis built the entire Kitchen Sink publishing enterprise while based in Wisconsin and, um, didn't move out of there until, you know, picking up the reins at what had been Tundra and turning it into the final incarnation of Kitchen Sink. Um, so all during that time, You know, if you were a creator who could uh, do your own work on your own book and get it done and out there, um, and especially if you could do it in a timely manner, which I was never able to do, um, (laughs) you could have great success. And even if you couldn't do it on a timely manner, I mean, I was selling with Tyrant, which was coming out about one issue every nine months. Um, I had a readership of between 25 and 32,000 readers each issue and that's phenomenal yeah. you know um once distribution collapsed in the mid 90s that was no longer viable right. there was just no way to do that and anyone looking at the sales numbers today for any comics that are out there they are pale shadows of the audience that we were reaching from you know, the mid eighties to the mid nineties.
1: And certainly, you know, with publishing schedules, Neil Adams and his continuity graphics are kind of notorious for delivering not just late but absurdly late, um, constantly having to return advances that were given from distributors on the um on the publishing. But
3: image think, had the same image had the same problems. Yeah. You know, there were exceptions. Eric Larson with Savage Dragon, um uh Sam Keith with um the Max. Those books came out in a timely fashion. But many of uh, the key players at Image um, just could not get a, books out in the time frame they had announced. Um, and I was, you know, I, I was guilty of that as well. Tyrant originally was supposed to be a monthly uh, book, and it would take me nine months to do an issue because of the amount of research and, and work that was going into it. Um, but yeah, Neil Adam, from Neil Adams in continuity to some of the big players at Image, um Lateness was a constant problem, and the same was true from some of the mainstream companies. Marvel was often late with key titles. Um, DC often had troubles making um, their announced shipment dates. Uh, it was a constant problem, um, and for retailers, it was a real issue because they're budgeting monthly and budgeting very tightly, and a book not shipping on time, um, however it sounds to your listeners, you know that is not a windfall for a retailer. That means that when the book finally does come out, It's completely upset the apple cart for whatever month it hits when they suddenly owe more than they had uh, budgeted for. Yeah,
1: their planned Um, spend gets thrown into a different timetable that their creditors don't really care about. Exactly.
3: Yeah. Exactly. And it also means by then you've ordered to fill the demand that was originally there for a title. Well, six months later... Those readers have moved on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, The anticipation usually didn't build. It would diminish and evaporate. Yeah. So these were some of the, the perils of the direct sale market. But by and large, it was a phenomenal period in comics publishing in North America. Will Eisner um, was often a keynote speaker at the trade shows that used to exist. The distributors used to have annual trade shows where you could go, and if you could invest a couple thousand dollars – uh, and get yourself to the trade show and have a table, you could meet firsthand and pitch your work to all the retailers that were attending that trade show. And they almost every year I went, I went four years in a row, I think. Will Eisner would be a speaker or a keynote speaker. And Eisner's message, especially in 93 and 94, to the gathered retailers and distributor reps and publishers in those rooms was. Don't blow this. This is the best there has ever been. And what did they do? They ignored Will, and they blew it. Um, When Marvel went direct with Heroes World, Heroes World was this little, tiny, um, multi-shop enterprise based in uh, New Jersey. And they also were doing modest distribution to their stores and a few others. Marvel decided to go direct meaning no distributors could buy Marvel product anymore. And that included Diamond and Capital could mm-hmm. no longer sell Marvel Comics. Um, that became what Larry Martyr, who was the creator of Bean World, called the Pearl Harbor of the direct sales market. And Larry was right. That was Pearl Harbor. It was all downhill from there. As soon as Marvel made that decision, DC decided to go direct with, with Diamond, and that was it. That was the beginning of the end of the direct sale market as it had one ex- once existed. And all these key players, Matt, believed that the – think of the market as a pie, a big pie. Mm-hmm. They all believed that same pie would exist a year later, that it would be just as big, and that the difference would be they had bigger slices then. But instead what happened was the pie shrank. Um, I'll never forget that Capital City show. When it became apparent, as the news filtered through the trade show hall that um, Image had just signed a uh, exclusive with Diamond, everyone there knew that was it. You know, if if Capital cannot carry and sell Marvel Comics, DC Comics, and Image Comics, hardy over. Right. And w- one of the best retailers, one of the retailers that always ordered my books reordered directly from me when he couldn't get them through the distributors walked up to me and shook my hand and said Steve it's been great doing business with you I'm going to go home and close my store and reopen it next month as a tobacco shop many of the retailers and shops just closed up at yeah. that point well, know,
1: we're going to take one the last market shrank. that we're going to take one last break and then we're going to come back and talk about the center for cartoon studies with our guest Steve Bissett. Podsequentialism uh, will turn after word from our sponsors.
0: Melt you the school at Meltdown where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now.
1: Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism, an outgrowth of the Pop Sequentialism exhibition and blog, and presented by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, where we are recording live and where there are always events. You may be hearing them in the background. So we're back again with um, with Steve Bissett, and we're going to um, talk a little bit about working with Alan Moore a second time and about um, how page rates don't seem to have changed too much on the open market in comics. And um, then we'll get around to talking about his work at the Center for Car- Cartoon Studies in Vermont and um, ushering in the next generation of uh, illustrators. So welcome back, Steve. And Thank uh, you. Absolutely. And I've, I wanted to bring this up because uh, there are so few uh, blogs that address page rates um, within the industry. And it seems like there's been so much union busting over the years in the comics trade specifically that... Um, Most creators have been kind of lulled. The people who are left in the room are people who really are in it for the love of the game because God knows the money isn't paying the bills um, from most people in comics that um, most people who are illustrating have to have second jobs, sometimes third jobs, just to keep a roof over their heads. And if they've got families, um, you're talking about definitely having um, uh, both spouses working and um, possibly even sharing living space because comic artists don't make a living wage. And looking at the last contract I saw, and I won't say where I got it, um, the offered um, daily page rates for Marvel Comics were $600 per cover and um, $100 per page. And um, there was no rev share unless there was um, at least, um, and and I'm sure it's different from comic to comic, but I think it was a um, 30,000 circulation. So what they're really looking at is republishing books that fall under 30,000 circulation as a book and not repaying the holding fee, not repaying the royalty, often recycling the art for further use in in in-house ads for a person that gets paid once. And um, I know that when you were at DC that there was a change when Karen came on board. She was a little bit more looking out for her people on her crew, so to speak, and that there was a slightly better deal going on. But um, if you could comment about um, how you've seen changes in the business and how slow those changes have been, Um, what do you have to say about it?
3: Oh boy, what a can of worms. Um, (laughs) well, bear in mind when we, uh, were working with DC, um, the, uh, contract was a one page, uh, invoice. Um, anytime you turned in pages, you would sign this contract voucher. Um, it stated what you got per page, what you would be getting if it was reprinted. It was very cut and dry, and of course, all work for hire. It was yeah. all owned by the company. And the premise of work for hire as a legal construct that your listeners need to understand is that work for hire, as practiced in the comic book industry, and we don't have time to get into whether it's even a legitimate practice or not – Um really is a legal construct in which you, the creator, are not creating the work. Um, the legal creator is, in the case of Swamp Thing, when we were doing it, DC Comics. So it's as if we were the sort of surrogate meat puppets that were moving, you know, Alan was moving keys around on typewriters to generate the wonderful creative work of DC Comics, and I was you know, the meat puppet moving graphite around on pieces of paper <laughs> provided by DC Comics and being the vehicle of expression for them and so on. That is the legal principle. Uh, it, it, it really is um, uh, a legal construct, a legal fiction that relegates the freelancer to a non-participatory role. Now, D.C., and it wasn't—you mentioned Karen Berger, and you're correct. Karen did try to take good care of her people, but it wasn't Karen. that was the primary movers and shaker. And I would have been loath to say this at many points in my life, but I have no problem saying it now. Paul Levitz, at his regime at D.C., made a huge difference in how creators were treated. Um, my generation didn't recognize what was happening directly because— We were the new generation Paul was was working with and that his regime at D.C. was working with. And we fought a lot of battles for creator rights. And as a result, there were a lot of bruises and scrapes and hurt feelings and long-lasting grudges formed, uh, both on the corporate side and on the individual side. Um, However, during that time, Paul and Jeanette Kahn – Jeanette was the publisher um, during much of this period – quietly went out and altered the nature of DC's relation with their freelancers they went out and took care of uh many of the surviving golden age creators and found ways to work with their legal departments at DC and at uh Warner which for a time was Time Warner mm-hmm. and then AOL Warner <laughs> they went through various you know Warner brother absorptions and so on as their superiors and they um, made all the working conditions and the financial um, and especially the royalty arrangements much more beneficial for uh, freelancers and that impacted us directly as well once Swamp Thing began to be collected in book format Mm -hmm. which happened pretty quickly I think the first Swamp Thing paperbacks came out around 1986 Each time there was a collection, D.C. would present us with a new agreement where we had an option to change the legal arrangement that we had with D.C. based on those original pay vouchers we had signed. And in every case, I would study those closely, and they were beneficial if I went with the royalty option, which promised you less up front but more on the back end. And over the decades since I did that body of work, at um dc on swamp thing um i have continued to earn every quarter on uh the fact that the work is still in print around the world and specifically for being one of the co-creators of the character that became john constantine hellblazer um that's all work that paul Levitz, jeanette Kahn. um Instituted at DC and pushed through, and at Karen Berger, um, certainly sanctioned and and played a role in codifying into the contracts that became the Vertigo contracts. And I won't spend time with that, but the Vertigo contracts were a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. Yeah. Um, there are aspects of the Vertigo. There's a reason I never did a Vertigo comic.
2: <laughs> right. Right. Um,
3: so there was nothing like that at Marvel. And Marvel is not the worst player out there. Um, there are other publishers like Archie who, and Disney, you know, who have just reprehensible work for hire contracts. Um, unbelievable contracts in some cases. And, um, I'll boil it down to one, uh, simple case history for you that'll take about a 30 seconds to spell out. When I wrote my introductions for the DC swamp thing, Uh, collected editions that came out in hardcover over the past two, three years. Because there were revisions of introductions I had done for Titan, for the black and white Swamp Thing collections that Titan put out in the UK back in the 90s, I not only was paid well for those introductions, I got to keep my copyright. When I did the same amount of work, a text feature, Um, It was not an introduction, it was an interim essay in one of the Marvel, um, I think it was the Amazing Adventures collected hardcover. Mm -hmm. Not only (laughs) did Marvel uh, try to not pay the amount that had been agreed to with the editor or who had approached me, um, (laughs) they altered the terms of the agreement. I mean, dealing with Marvel's legal department over a two-page text piece convinced me to never again work with Marvel Comics in any way, shape, or form. And remember, I worked with Marvel as a freelancer from 1977 to 1982. I mean, I had a back history of having worked with Marvel as a cartoonist. They've gotten worse. Wow. And the contract I had to sign was insane. You know, the length of it, the breadth of it, just for a two-page text piece. So... You know, working conditions have gotten worse. Page rates have altered in many ways. Now, the page rates you cited in one way are phenomenal, but in another way are terrible. <laughs> yeah. When I was doing Swamp Thing covers in the 80s, 200 a cover was what I got. Yeah. Okay? And that's not just pencils. That was pencils and inks. Um, when we were doing Swamp Thing pages as a penciler, I started at – a page I think I ended at $73 a page which means John was getting less than that per page for his amazing inks on those books I have to say Um, though the
1: very first piece of published comic book art I ever bought was one of your Swamp Thing pages I hope you held on to it (laughs) it it was actually stolen um, at a convention in the the early 90s
3: I mean those pages sell now for more than we used to get for a year of working on that book. Yeah. and um, So things have changed in a lot of ways, but in other ways they haven't. I mean, I've been approached a few times over the last, I'd say, three, four years by publishers, um, some of them high-end name publishers, wanting me to do a cover or something on one of their projects. And when I ask what it's paying, um, it's less. Than I was getting when I walked away from doing covers for DC wow. in the mid '80s. Now those are easy things to say no to. No, I won't do your work for higher cover for less than I was paid in 1986 when I stopped doing work for higher covers for DC. Right. Um, now uh, also what I see is more and more licensed books, Matt, which means the lion's share of the budgets on those books are actually going to the licensors, mm-hmm. uh, the people who are working on, say, Godzilla for. IDW or Dynamite or whoever's got the Godzilla license right now, they are not making as much as Toho makes off those books. Right. No, I've <laughs> I've, I've, I've means, licensed
1: from Toho. I've licensed films in the past. And if anybody's making money, it's going to be Toho on a Toho. Well,
3: ride. sure. And that's why they, they're Toho. Um, um, but that means that all those books exist on the backs of those freelancers who often are doing it because of the love of the character. Yeah. And that's what this business has thrived on at least since the 60s when fan culture began to make the leap from fandom to working professionally is the love of the characters um slaving professionally well and dave sim jokingly said at one point but he was right you know before i left swamp thing before john left swamp thing we all got our shot in with batman and, and dave said yeah everybody gets a shot at batman before they leave um <laughs> and and there is that that love thing that, that will keep you there um, so in that way, the industry, uh, is, but you look at the sales numbers on the books and I can understand why the rates are so low. The books just aren't selling much. Yeah. I look at what the top sales numbers are. And I mean, that's what the low end independent black and whites were selling in the late eighties and early nineties. And now that's the backbone of the industry. Um, on the other hand, what it concerns me more, though, are the rights issues, that more and more of those page rates are attached to contracts, often nonsensical contracts that are these crazy quilt Frankenstein boilerplate combinations of things that were grabbed off various websites um, that promise nothing to the creators who are actually doing the work. There's no back end. There's no royalties, um, so on and so forth. So – and a lot of these creators now are working digitally, so they don't even have the, the self-subsidizing the ability, to sell, yeah. ability to sell their original art. I mean, John and I subsidized our ongoing work on Swamp Thing by going to conventions, doing sketches, and selling originals. That's what kept the roof over our heads, um, was that ability to have that side market where you know we were earning additionally off our work. So how are you know now how
1: would... um how are you now preparing that next generation with um with the kids that are graduating from Center for Cartoon Studies?
3: Well that's a great question and you had mentioned earlier I didn't form the Center for Cartoon Studies. The uh, Center for Cartoon Studies is the brainchild of James Sturm and Michelle Ollie. Mm-hmm. They founded the school in 2005. We're coming up to our our 10th year uh this summer. And uh we prepare them in a number of ways. One of the things is The mainstream that you and I are talking about is no longer the mainstream. Um, The students we get at the Center for Cartoon Studies have their eyes on the book market Mm -hmm. and um, the kind of deals that are offered through the book market, uh, which tend to be not work for hire. There's other contract issues there that we don't have time to get into, and there are things to be wary of. But it's a very different legal paradigm, and it's a very different marketplace.
1: More that Fantagraphics Um, type of, of setup.
3: Well, that, but beyond that, I mean, we've got graduates who sometimes come in the door with a strong fan base for their web comics that they've been doing. And in some cases, those people, thanks to the various models that exist now for subsidizing your favorite cartoonist whose who's internet comics, whose digital comics you love, um, some of them are making good livings while they're at the school of students through their web comics. There, are, These were models that didn't even exist, weren't even dreamt. Well, I shouldn't say weren't dreamt of. Scott McCloud was talking about it as far back as 1988. So <laughs> Scott was dreaming of it. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Um, Zott himself. But I'm, but I'm seeing it happening. And in some cases, because my focus is on my students, I want to first meet them when I walk into the classroom as their teacher. And I primarily know them through the work they do in the classroom and the work that they present to me and the other instructors. Sometimes it's not even until graduation mm-hmm. that I look at their broader body of work and go, oh, my mm-hmm. God, this, you know, here's somebody who's already got bedrock for their cartooning career, and they're doing quite well. So things like – and I'm going to mispronounce it. Um, is it Patreon? Patreon? Patreon. It's the uh, web service where you sign on. And support a cartoonist, and the money is trickled to them so much per month.
1: I believe so. Yes, and actually a few right. people wrap repat the loser on it now.
3: Kickstarter and Indiegogo. I mean, there's all these means of self-publishing now that involve crowdfunding, and I am seeing it work. And these have their pitfalls as well. I've heard many horror stories. I've seen some firsthand from CCSers, including faculty who have used Kickstarter. And at the back end, suddenly realize, oh, I didn't calculate in for income tax. I didn't (laughs) – my book cost more to ship than I had budgeted for. I mean there's a lot of traps there as well. But these are new models for um, financing, for self-publishing, and for distribution. The beauty of some of these things is they don't – diamond doesn't matter to most of my students. You know, diamond isn't interested in them. And we are now a generation and a half beyond when Diamond became a monopoly. So we are now a full generation into cartoonists who are, who are figuring out how to function without Diamond.
1: And Kickstarter <laughs> is now the fifth largest publisher of books, I think, in the United
3: States. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Now, I'll go one more. How much time do we have?
1: Oh, we've got a few minutes.
3: Okay. Create Space and Amazon. You know, this is a very volatile – topic in the classroom. I've got students who see Amazon as the devil incarnate, because it's such an all powerful retail um, organism out there. And it's got its tentacles everywhere. You know, you, you pay into Kickstarter, Amazon gets its share. They own a lot of these models for, for crowdfunding and for financing and for distribution. But I look at it and I go, you know, the work I used to have to do to sell an issue of taboo. And I still have boxes of taboo in my garage, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you're working with offset printers and you're working with backstock and you're create space right now is this sweet window of opportunity where the print-on-demand technology has evolved to the point where it's more affordable, the per-unit cost is more reasonable, and when I look at the books, the paper is good, the black ink looks black. It's not quite up to... The amazing printing we see in fanographics and a lot of the books that are being printed in Asia, but it's better than what we had when I was working with Prenny, Print, and Litho doing Tyrant on newsprint, you know, <laughs> and the fact that I can now put together a PDF, form my own business, set up a PayPal or bank account, and have my book out on CreateSpace practically overnight is a phenomenal new Age for self-publishing and the opportunity of self-publishing. I've been contributing now for well over a year. We just finished our 17th issue of a um, monster magazine that's called Monster! Uh, It's a partnership of Tim Paxton, uh, Brian Harris, Steve Fenton, and Tony Strauss. And I've been a contributor since their number one issue. I wasn't in number zero. And Tim Paxton can... Uh, Work with me as a designer when I turn in my article, tweak the production, and once that book is done, 24 hours later, it is available for sale everywhere in the world without prohibitive shipping costs. The same issue that ships to you – where are you living now, Matt?
1: In uh, Pasadena.
3: Okay. If you order the copy from Amazon or CreateSpace to ship to Pasadena and it's in your hands in less than a week – a reader in Australia can buy it and not be dealing with the prohibitive shipping costs from the U.S. to Australia because it's being printed on demand in Australia. Locally. Um, this has opened up distribution and removed the onus and overhead of backstock, dealing with warehouses, so on and so forth, unless and until you get to the readership point where going offset, dealing with fulfillment houses makes financial sense. And I do have – um students whose you know they or their um partners in life have been successful enough as book publishers that they have books that have sold over three hundred thousand copies. They began as create space books and now they're working with offset printing and fulfillment houses because they're at that volume of sales where that makes sense. We are in a, a an invisible golden age to the comic market. The comic market is acting like diamond Marvel and DC are still the only fish in the room and the room doesn't even exist anymore, Matt. (laughs) The world has gone so far beyond that paradigm. And all of this is available to all your listeners right now, the creators who are listening and the consumers who are listening and all the people in between. Um, my goal during the next year is to get a lot of my work out as create space books. Um, Think of it. I can take a story like A Frog is a Frog that Steve Perry and I did um, back in, what was it, Uh, early 80s for Bizarre Adventures. Mm -hmm. I have every step of that process. I have the script. I have my sketches. Um, I'm going to put together a book that's just that one story, but that book will show every stage of the process that Steve and I went through creating that story. Wow. Um, That wouldn't have been possible five years ago. And no one would have touched it. And I don't have to worry about finding a publisher because I can do it myself. And if I only sell 10 copies, no problem. I, it's, I don't have an overhead, really, except right. the time I put in and my setup costs. Um, but if it does well, um, you know, I'm able to make sure a share goes to um, the heirs of my late friend Steve Perry. And the rest of the revenue stream comes to me. And Amazon does take a huge cut but it's less than the 60% I used to give to Diamond. Right. Bingo.
2: Well, I hope so I'm not everybody... worried about
3: page rates anymore. And I discuss that stuff with my students, but they, their eyes are no longer on how can I get a job working for a publisher at a page rate that will make ends meet. Their eyes are on, how do I get my memoir or my graphic novel or my anthology out there um, in such a way that I only have to work one side job or best of all worlds, no side job (laughs) because it's earning enough. That's possible now. And I see many reasons to be optimistic right now. Um, I entered the field when it was at a complete nadir. When Rick Beach, Tom Yates and I graduated from the Kubert School, the D.C. implosion had just happened. The publishers weren't hiring. We couldn't get our foot in the door at the mainstream houses. It's not that different from the world my students are going out into, but we didn't have the internet. We didn't have the means of self-distribution. We didn't have, you know, these publishing models that no longer involve paste-ups, mechanicals. You know, my students prepare a PDF file and they know how to do that. They have a CreateSpace book practically overnight. That is not to minimize the six months to five years that go into making that Thing that then they turn into a PDF. right? Um, but it's an amazing time we're in. And uh, I, I think there's reasons to talk about that and to encourage that, just as Dave Sim encouraged me to think differently about what I was doing when I was working for D.C.,
1: well, that's the ultimate pay it forward, and I think we've reached the end of, of this particular podcast, but I encourage um, – this is something that we should probably loan over a little bit to Meltdown University um, because I can't imagine anyone who would endeavor to have a career in comics could hear the conversation that we've just had over the last slightly over an hour – amount of time and not have their, their eyes completely opened by the situation as maybe they perceived it. And the uh, the hope that maybe just around the corner. So Steve, I want to thank you again for, for being on pod sequentialism. Um, please shout out some websites for everybody. So they know where to find your work.
3: Um, com is still up and running, even though, um, I have not been blogging for quite a time. Uh, the web store is still available there. I am on Facebook and I am on Twitter and, um, I do work round the clock, round the year at the Center for Cartoon Studies in White River Junction, Vermont, which is at cartoonstudies.org. And um, I'll see you all in the funnies, as they say.
1: Excellent. Thanks again, Steve. We'll talk to you soon.
3: Thank you much. Cheers.
1: So I want to thank you again for listening to Pod Sequentialism, the outgrowth of the Pop Sequentialism exhibition and blog site, and Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. Um, Please go ahead and look through our our catalog of of shows, listen to them, share them. Uh, They'll be on iTunes and you can share them there as well. And uh, tune in next week for another amazing episode of Pod Sequentialism with me, your host, Matt Kennedy.